This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Going to do, we're going to start in Parsha South 5783, Parachas Pasuk Lamed But these, these are the last three Pesukim of the Parsha. The truth is, is that this year started off with Pasuk Lamed and I just wanted to speak about that. And then something happened, and I realized I didn't have enough to speak about on Pasuk Lamed so I added on Pasuk Lamed Hay. And then I realized that you can't do Lamed and Lamed Hay without Lamed Vav. So it's a triple deal, okay? I got all three of them going for everybody. So you got three for one today. Pasuk says, So if anybody has done Yuma in the first parak, most of Yuma, the first parak is dealing with this Pasuk, at least for the first couple Dafim. Like he did on this day, HaKadosh Baruch who commanded to do in the future to atone for themselves. That this was a future thing. What you did now is going to be for the future. And it says, The Kohanim had to sit by the doorway, the entranceway, the Olmoed, day and night, for seven days. And you'll keep the Mishmar of HaKadosh Baruch the guardianship of HaKadosh Baruch and you won't die. That's what I was commanded, said Moshe Rabbeinu, and he gave that over to Aaron, that whenever you want to be machaper for yourselves, whenever you want that atonement, that's what you have to do, a seven-day thing. Aaron and his sons did everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had commanded Moshe Rabbeinu in the hands of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's the end of the Parsha. The end of Parsha Sav deals with the eighth day of the Miluim, that eighth day of consecration, which we know of as Rosh Chodesh Nisan. There is an opinion that says the eighth of Nisan, but most likely Rosh Chodesh Nisan, when they were finally able to get into the base of Mikdash and they did everything they were supposed to do. This, These psukim seem to indicate that in the future, whenever there would be a kapara necessary, when they would need to atone for themselves, they would have a seven-day process to go into the base of Mikdash and do what they needed to do, and that's the idea behind it. Now, Rashi brings that down. He says that there are two times that the Kohen Gadol would need to stay away from the people for seven days in order to be mechaper for them. One was by in the Mishkan slash base of Mikdash. One was by Yom Kippur. Obviously, in order to separate himself and make sure that he was Tahor for Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur service, he would have to stay away for seven days, and that's the first time. The second time is for Maise Parah, when dealing with the ashes of the Parah Duma, before sprinkling them, before doing all the process that we had, the Kohen who was in charge, it usually wasn't the Kohen Gadol, but the Kohen who was in charge of doing those ashes of the Parah Duma, he would have to separate himself for seven days. We call this Prisha. That's how Rashi calls it, that's how the Gemara calls it. It was a Chiyuv, as much as the avoda was, the prisha itself was a chiv. The Paneach Raza has Ramazim that hint to this, but it's all brought in that first pasuk. That first pasuk is about this idea of prisha. There's another purpose here as well: the seven days of separation from the people. Then it says that one's korban should not be brought if you're not there with it. You can't send a korban and just tell them, "Just bring it for me, and I'll be around," and whatever it is. No, you have to be there, standing over your korban. There are ways of getting around that, obviously, for the Korban Tamid, which had to be brought by all the people. But nonetheless, you're supposed to be there for your Korban. The Korbanos brought during these seven days atoned for the Kohanim themselves, specifically the Ola and the Chata Sachitzon. Those two right over there. Therefore, they had to be there for the first seven days when Moshe Rabbeinu was involved in 
and bringing them, says the Nitziv, you can't be there without. And since the Korbanos were for them, the Kohanim had to stand there the entire time while the Korbanos were being brought. Otherwise, it was a Korban for nobody, a Korban for nothing. And that couldn't be. They wouldn't allow that to happen. Rav Hirsch understands from this Pesach something super interesting. He says, Kasher also, like he did by Yomazeh, refers to Akadosh Baruch as if God did everything himself here, as if he separated for seven days and then atoned for the people. We learn over here, the idea is that if someone does something because of the command of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this is what Hashem told me to do, and he does it L'Shem Shemaim, and that means, obviously you have a couple other things involved, but I'm doing this because God told me to do it. It's as if Hashem himself did it. Anybody who's learned Nefesh Achayim in the first parak understands this concept, that all we're doing is Hashem Tzilcha. <laughs> it applies to the Balatanya and any Baal Shem Tov word as well. That Hashem Tzilcha, Hashem is in your, is your shadow. You do something, and HaKadosh Baruch follows suit above. It's as if Hashem is being involved in this. It's true by any king. As we see by Dovin when they fought against Amon, Yoav called Dovin and said, Come, you should finish off the war. You should be the one that wins the war at the very, very end. And that's exactly what he did when they defeated King Hanun. Yoav calls him in. Dovin oh, yes, you remember this? Yona? You guys remember this? Good. So they, they went in and they called him in. So the war would be won in the name of Yona himself. Yona, Dovin himself. That's that. Especially by Hashem, where the deeds of a tzaddik are considered like the deeds of a Kaddish Baruch himself. That's the idea behind it. So the way that Rapersh understands it is as if HaKadosh Baruch was doing it along with us. It's as if he is doing the Avoda along with Moshe Rabbeinu and then Aaron on these seven slash eight days of Miluim getting ready for the Mishkan to be made. The Ben Ishchayna, Deris Elio, says an unbelievable idea. He says the words, Bayom Hazet. Bayom Hazet on this day shows us that we should never question HaKadosh Baruch Hu's judgment when it comes to things in this world. That when we see things that decisions have to be made, we shouldn't question God. The sun has the power to do two very different things. Anybody who's seen a person, right, who goes out into the sun and stays out there for a week, like those tremendous sedikim that are going to Orlando that I'm not jealous of whatsoever over the next couple weeks and come back as brown and wrinkled as a prune, right? Sees that it depends on the amount of time you spend in the sun. A little bit is great and too much looks you look like, make you, makes you look like a little raisin. We all understand that. We know that happens. You take fruits and you put them out in the sun, you can dry them out. But if you put them too long in the sun, they just become these dried out pieces of inedible nothingness that you can't do anything with. It evaporates water. It creates salt at the same time. It dries fruit. It makes solids, right, into, I guess you could take frozen things and turns them into regular things. It turns them into liquid. If you take something that's pure ice and it turns into liquid itself, whitens clothing and darkens skin. Says the Daris Elio, says the Banish Chai. So too when it comes to the Paraduma. The Paraduma by definition is paradoxical. It stands for two totally different things. It's Metaher, the tame. But the one who sprinkles it, the mitaher, becomes Tameh. That's extremely strange. If it makes someone Tahor who already was Tameh, then you'd think for sure the guy who sprinkles it would be even more Tahor. But not so. That's the exact opposite. And so to the Avodah Yom Kippur. It's also very, very different. Only a Kohen Gadol can do this service on Yom Kippur. But he has to wear the clothing of a Kohen Hedyot. 
He can't wear his gold investments. He can't wear the tzitz and the me'il, as well as the aphod and all the other things that a normal Kohen Gadol would wear. He's got to wear the clothing of a Kohen Adyot. It's a strange, paradoxical thing that they're both involved over here. That's the idea behind what the sun stands for. And that's what we mean by Yom Hazeh. By Yom Hazeh, says the Ben Ishchai, referring to this day where the sun shines down and does opposites, one thing opposite the other, just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the sun with different pu'ulos, different ways to do things in this world, he made the Paraduma, as well as the Avodah of Yom Kippur, Lechaper Aleichem. They have a dichotomy, which means two different things going on that only HaKadosh Baruch Hu understands. And the truth is, I kind of understand why Parsha Sav is always the Parsha that leads up to Pesach. Yeah, in a leap year, it's a couple Parshas before. It's Tazria usually, when you have what right leading up to Pesach itself. But Parsha Sav is this idea that also applies by Pesach. You have Matzah, which has that double dual role that we don't quite understand. Is it poor man's bread? Or is it a wealthy man's bread that they lean while they eat it? What is wine exactly? If wine is supposed to be the wine that we drink at the end because we're following our ge'ula, why do we drink it in the beginning of the Seder while we're still slaves in Mitzrayim? Why are we holding up the cup singing Vihisham Dalavosenu Lanu if it's really supposed to be only after we got free? We should pour the cups only after we went out. Eat the matzah in the beginning of the meal, drink the wine at the end of the meal, and that would be there. But it's a whole night of paradoxical things, of dichotomies that work together, where it's one versus the other, and that's what this idea of Parsha Stav teaches us, this idea of going together. Who is it now? That is the exact point, right? It's supposed to be that way. The idea of the dippings and everything like that, everything is supposed to be that way. Now, Rashi says, at the end of Pasuk Lamed, hey, it teaches me that if they didn't do exactly as they were told, if the Kohanim changed anything, one iota of what they were supposed to do, then they would die. And that's what it means. Below Samusu, you won't die. That's what I was commanded. But if you would change one thing, you would be Chayav Misa. The Ramban explains what that means. Wondrous. It's like a crazy thing. They wouldn't leave until the Avoda was finished. They would not leave their spots. The Kohanim stood there by the entranceway of the Mishkan, Pesach Olmoid, and did not leave until the Avoda was finished. They stayed there, says the Ramban, until everything was done. This is a mitzvah that continued for generations afterward, that no Kohen is allowed to leave until everything is over, and they're Chayev Misa if they leave early. It'd be like a guy who's standing there and all of a sudden they start laning and the guy who's laning is super long. So the guy has to go. So he gets up and he tries to leave. And we say you're chayv misa for leaving. You can't leave davening early. Getting out of chakras early would be chayv misa. That's the avoda. But not just Aaron and his kids. It's anyone who has shemen mishchas kodesh alam. Anybody who was anointed by that oil would not be able to leave early. They're all included in this sister. And that would apply to any coin that applied at that time. That's how the Ramban understands. Now, Rechiel Michael Feinstein does not understand the Ramban whatsoever. That seems a little crazy. The quantum didn't work until the eighth day of the Miluim. They didn't do anything. Moshe Rabbeinu was doing everything up until that point. The quantum were just standing there watching. The eighth day, Rosh Kodesh Nisan, is when they got up and they started doing stuff. That's the idea. There was no avoda for them to do? What in the world is the Pusik saying that they had to be there during the Avoda? What Avoda? 
There was no avoda. There was no service at that time. They hadn't started the avoda. They couldn't be told not to leave during the avoda. They're not davening. It's like a guy who already davened and then went to Minyan and he saw that they're on laning and he decides to get up and go and he said, no, you can't leave. Why not? I davened already. I did everything I was supposed to do. Aaron was sitting there without doing anything and he wasn't allowed to leave. He says Sarachin at the very end. He says he has absolutely no idea what the Ramban talks about. The truth is, I looked at this Ramban and the first question I had is, what if he had to go to the bathroom? What if he had to go to the washroom? Was he not able to go the entire day? Did he have to stay there the entire time? He couldn't leave? Did they stand in their spots the whole time? Were they allowed to walk around? Did they just bring them food so they could eat right outside the Pesach Moed? What in the world was this? The Ramban makes it sound like they literally couldn't leave. How is it possible? The Paris Yosef also wonders, if what about the nighttime? Is night, because it says Yomam Belayla, is nighttime part of the avoda? Is there really an avoda they're doing at night? Yes, they burn the fats and the limbs on top of the Mizbeach. Did Aaron and his sons have to stay there all night long? Were they required to stay up the entire night? What, stay up all day and all night, sleep for a couple hours, and then start the avoda all over again the next day? And they weren't doing anything. They're just standing there watching the entire time. He doesn't understand it whatsoever. He says, additionally, it's possible that Shmira Sakodesh, just watching that area and guarding that area, might be enough for that to be good enough to be considered an avoda itself. He doesn't understand it. It's completely lost. But either way, the Rishonim seem to all agree. Not the Ramban necessarily, although I kind of think it's hinted to in the Ramban, but they were allowed to leave at times. The Rabbin of the Moshe of Zikanim, the Tur and the Ibn Ezra all mention it. They all quote the Torah's Kohanim in Parsha Shmini and the Miluim that says that if you had to go, if you had to go, you were allowed to go. That was not an issue. Rechaim Paltiel wonders about the bathroom itself. He says, wait a second, maybe they really didn't need to go to the bathroom. Because what were they eating the entire time? Aaron and his sons. They're in the midbar, right? So they were eating mun. They were drinking bear shel miriam. The mun and the bear shel miriam didn't didn't make them go to the bathroom. But then he asks, but weren't they eating the meat of the korbanos? The meat of the korbanos should have gotten them to go to the bathroom. Now that happens to be a machlokus in the Gemara. The meat of the korbanos, if you ate the mun, did the mun just get absorbed in the body? so you didn't go to the bathroom after eating the mun, or did it dissolve any food that was in the body, so you never had to go to the bathroom at all? What did the mun do exactly when you ate it? It went down and it went into your stomach, or it went down through the esophagus and just went throughout your entire body? What exactly, if it went all the way to the stomach, did it then melt down everything in the stomach, like gastric juices, completely melted down to the point where nobody went, or some people did go? So he wonders about that, and that already is a question, but either way, if they needed to leave, they were allowed to leave. The Gorei agrees with this idea. He says, he quotes the Ramban, and he says, there's no way that they were expected to sit there for seven days and seven nights without leaving. They never went home. They never slept that entire time. Maybe they didn't go home because they were worried about them becoming tummy if they were near their wives, but they never went to a place like the Lishkas Palhedrin, or the Parhedrin, that they had in the times of the Beis Mikdash, where the Kohen would be separated for seven days. He didn't go to that type of a place. It could be, he says, that Moshe only took down the Mishkan a little bit in the morning before building it back up again afterwards since he had to light the menorah throughout the night and they had to bring Korbanos earlier in the morning. I know it says that Moshe Rabbeinu put up the Mishkan in the morning, took it down at night. It could be that he really didn't take it down at night. He took it down like right before dawn. 
and then put it right back up right afterward to be able to go through. So maybe in theory, there was service to do during the day, just during the couple hours at night when the Mishkan was down, that's when they were allowed to leave and they were allowed to sleep a little bit. But the Gurahi is very, very questionable. It doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere. That's how he says it. Where Victor Miller adds the simple idea, they were human. They were humans. Human beings cannot stand in one place for seven days straight without doing anything. That's not an expectation. You can't expect people to just stand there even as great as Aaron was and Nadav and Abiyu and Elazar and Itamar. They couldn't do that for seven days straight. They said the point was for them not to get distracted. Be there as long as you can. Watch the Avoda for as long as you can. Be involved as much as you can. That's the way, says Victor Miller, how a Jew is supposed to live his life. Look, our lives should be revolved around Torah and davening. But the reality is, we can't live that way. I think every single person understands that, right? There are very, very, very few people in this world that can go 24-7 with their minds mamish stuck in Torah learning. How many Rechaim Knievskis could there possibly be out there? And if somebody claims that they are that type of a person, I would question them. I would say they're probably a liar. Right? There's not too many people that are like that. So it's normal. You have to be somewhat normal. But the point is, says Ravigda Miller, is that your mindset should always be there. Meaning, even when you're out and you're not able to be in the base medrash, even when you're working and even if the work is taking up the majority of your day, but your mindset is, I'm going to Shacharis in the morning, I'm going to Minchamarv at night, and I'm going to learn. If that mindset is there, then it doesn't matter that there's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours in the middle of the day where you can't do what you really want to do. If your mindset is, this is what I really want, and the only way for me to get there is to do this, and the sleep on the side, and the eating, etc., then the hechi timsa for you to learn, the ability for you to learn, is exactly that, says from Victor Miller. That's doing the avoda day and night. The point of this Pasuk is to tell you that lesson, that every single person here can be like Aaron and the Kohanim, working day and night, standing by the Mishkan. Did they really do so day and night? No. But their mindset was on that. They didn't think about anything else. They didn't allow themselves to think about anything else. Everything else there. And I'm just quoting Reverend Victor Miller on this. We should never be interested in art for art's sake. That's what he says. Art for art's sake. Travel, hunting, sports, romance, adventure, and everything else in life should only be done for the glory of Hashem and His service, not for anything else. That's the line from Revigdor Miller. If you haven't read those Revigdor Miller packets that are handed out to us of Victor every single week, then maybe you don't get this as much. But that Revigdor Miller packet is pretty much this in a nutshell, just screaming at people in many different ways and usually a little racist. That's basically Revigdor Miller's packet every single week, and it's absolutely amazing. But that's the idea of how a person is supposed to live his life. Somebody asked me this week, it was the first time that I'd ever been asked this question. I haven't been asked this before. I've been asked about Machu Picchu. I've been asked about that. Somebody asked me if they could go to the Sistine Chapel. They were allowed to go into the Sistine Chapel. If every, those who don't know, right, it's a famous painting by a famous painter that was made inside a church. Are you allowed to go inside it? And I, I said, what? The ceiling. The ceiling, right. It's the ceiling of the church itself. And I said, like, why? That was my answer back. Why? And he said, because it's amazing and it's painted by this amazing painter. Can I do it? Can I, can I go inside? And I said, like, you can't go inside a chapel. You're not allowed to go inside a church. So he followed that up by asking, can I go to the Vatican? So I'm like, are you Christian? 
<laughs> you have so many beautiful shoals. If you want to see art, there are so many beautiful shoals in Italy. Supposedly, they're unbelievable shoals. I've never been, never wanted to go, have zero desire. But there's supposedly beautiful shoals in Italy. And you're asking me about the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel? Something's messed up over here. That's the idea. That's messing up the concept of art for art's sake rather than that. Now, if you tell me, I've been to every single shoal, I've seen everything, and I want to show how the shoals are greater than the Sistine Chapel, you're a liar. But fine, maybe then we have a Shiloh that we can ask and then we'll figure out what we're going to be over here. But that's not really why you want to go and I call you out on that and you're the same guy who told me before that you're like Rukhain Kenievsky. You're a liar. But regardless, yeah, Mati, what's up? If you're going to tell me you've seen the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Yeah. There's no Gemara. Technically, there's no Isser. There's a Noda be Yehuda in Kama and Tinur. That's the famous one everybody quotes. Rabbi Chesko Landau that quotes everything because he says Esav and Nimrod are the only hunters. He says, whether or not it's Sabal he questions it, whatever it is, but at the end of the day, right, Esav and Nimrod are the only people that are known as hunters, therefore a person shouldn't hunt. But it's not a Gemara. There's officially no Gemara. And Noda be Yehuda is the first person to bring it, to bring it up. And then others bring it up as well. It's brought down in other two Sicily. He has a quote to Ravadi Yosef has it via. What about a meeting with the Pope in his office? Not, not Why? Why do it? Again, if you're being called know, for a reason and whatever it is, you have no choice, right? whatever it is. But like, if you don't, I don't understand. Like, I'll, I'll give you the specific example. Yeah. So, Greg Matanke, as the head of the RCA. Right, had to go in order to go through. Yeah, yeah. So, he can ask his own Shiloh to himself. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm totally okay with that. But like, on the other hand, like, I just don't force it. You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you say, like, you know, texting the Pope, like, hey, Pope, can I come in? By the way, as a side note, did you know that my daughter for many, many years always thought that Popeyes really meant Pope yes? For many, many years, she had absolutely no idea. Absolutely no idea. But I don't know what Pope no would have been. But yeah, yeah. Um, we say that, do we say that the pardon itself yeah, I guess so. Like, as long as you're actually, like, thinking and not just, like, para duma, para duma, para duma, then yeah, you have to be thinking about actually something there. But yes, 100%. And regarding the machlokas between two people, whether the one dissolved the food inside them or if it just dissolved yeah. the one itself, if they need to go to the bathroom, how would they... Yeah, bathroom would be a little bit of an issue. But there you have a tour. Once you're an Onis and you have a tour, you don't have to worry about that stuff. So no matter what, that applies to us nowadays also. You can't think about Torah learning when you're in the bathroom. So you do other things instead. But instead, you can think about the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and other things. You don't have to watch a video. I know that's crazy talk because I'm pretty sure that's what YouTube was put on phones for for those who don't have, if you don't have your phone filtered, you definitely should. But if you do have a phone that's unfiltered, that's evil, and you have YouTube on it, that's you'd think that's what bathroom is for, you have another, you have other things to do then, right? That, that, that's the other thing. I'm pretty sure that YouTube has made their billions off of bathrooms, and that's a terrible thing, and you should never touch other people's phones. That's all from Victor Miller. There's a Mizrahi over here. He talks about it as well, but I'm going to skip it for right now. What were they told exactly? What exactly was our, were Aaron and his, everybody else, what were they told? Earlier it says, lo seitsu, that they shouldn't leave the area, they should stay around that area. Now they're told, teishvu, that they have to stay there. Now, this is a little bit of a machlokas. Lo seitsu is a lav, obviously. Teishvu is an ase. What exactly was the mitzvah for Aaron and his sons to be around there? The Ibn Ezra seems to say they're the same. Teishvu is only mentioned here, so we know that the punishment otherwise would be death. That's one thing. That's how the Ibn Ezra puts it. The Shariyan suggests that the reason why both are mentioned is based on what the Rishonim said above and based on this Ramban. The words lo seitsu is when they're not doing the avoda. 
Lo seitu, right? Lo seitu, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Lo seitu is when they're doing the avoda. When they're in the midst of doing the avoda, they cannot leave. Teshvu applies even when they're not doing anything. They should not leave for any reason that's not good. Lo seitu is you're doing the avoda, you better be there. Teshvu is you're not doing the avoda, stay unless you have a reason to be somewhere else, like you have to go eat or you have to go to the water, something else that would apply over there. The, the idea behind this is the same basic concept of what one would have by sukkis. Basukos teishvu shivaz yamim. What's the mitzvah of teishvu by sukkis? What are you supposed to do? Teishvu is ke'en teduru, we say, right? You have to like live inside there. Meaning you should be inside the sukkah for everything. You should sleep inside there if not for the weather. You should eat inside there if not for the weather. You should do everything inside there. Even metayo besocha sukkah. The only time you leave is when you're supposed to leave. Like you have to get something or you have to go to the... Go to a minion, or you have to go to that. That's the way that a person should live, and that's what we're talking about over here as well. That Aaron and his sons could leave at different times, so that might be the explanation. Although none of the Rishonim say this, it's possible that's what they all mean that you can stay. It's low seitu when you're doing the avoda, teishvu, but teishvu came to duru the way you'd live, and don't do anything else. If you have to go, then you'd be allowed to go. That's the concept of what it would be, and sort of the Gurari seems to say very, very similar to that. That's the idea behind it. So what was the purpose of them staying there for seven days? Why have them there? Is it just to show like they can do it? Was that the only reason why? So the Abarbanel says it was to discuss the halachos that they needed to know. If you miss something, you never know what you're going to miss that you're going to need in the future. Watching Moshe Rabbeinu for seven days straight showed them a consistency that allowed them to go into the avoda perfectly, flawlessly, as if there was nothing there. They went through a dry run seven times in a row to make sure they knew what they were doing so they didn't have any problems. That's what they did seven times in a row. They just kept going and going and going. Says the Abarbanel, that's what they did. And they went over the avoda constantly with each other. They're all geniuses. This Aaron and his four kids. They went over the learning. They went over the limud. They wouldn't be confused. The iun and the limud helped them not die in the future. That's Velosa Musa. That's what the Pasuk means. Then Itziv says the exact same thing. He uses the other word, the word Mishmeres. He says that Mishmeres means learning Torah Shaba'al Peh. There's Chukim and Mishpatim, which is Torah Shaba'al and Mishmeres, which is Torah Shaba'al Peh. They discussed with each other. They went over all the laws, over and over and over again, Chazring and Chazring and Chazring, while watching Moshe Rabbeinu do the Avodah. That way, the low Samusu says in Itziv. They're never going to be high for something that they weren't paying attention to. And it's very similar, if anybody knows the Gemara and Chagiga in the second parak, where it says, you should not have learning different Maisa Bereshis or Maisa Merkava with three people, maybe even four for Arias, etc. The reason why is because if you have more than a couple people there, then you'll have a problem because you'll talk with the Rebbe and then two other people might have their own discussion. They're going to miss something super important while the Rebbe is explaining a certain Awaka that if they don't have, Samusu. You're going to die. It's the exact same thing over here, the way he says it. Then Nativ says that exact, exact same thing. Now, the Meshach Chochmah takes that word Mishmeris to be something a little bit different. He says it refers to them not being together with their wives. Meaning, they weren't allowed to be together with wives, even if they went home at night, which is already a Shiloh. Were they able to go home or not? As I kind of alluded to before, there's Yushalmi on that in Yuma Aleph Aleph. But whether or not they were allowed to go home, they certainly could not become Tameh. 
That could not happen. So they stayed away from their wives the entire time. And that was that. And that was the Mishmar. The Mishmar is watching themselves. They had to watch themselves to stay away from everybody. Tam Vidas, where Shurbach says this as well, says that they followed the laws of the Rabbanon regarding staying away from an Ishanita, even though those Harchakos and those laws were not even made yet. They're somewhat the Rabbanon, maybe based on the Orises, Asmachtos, but those laws, they stayed away from naturally. That was the Mishmaris they made. They made their own guardianship and made sure I'm staying away. I don't want to become Tomei. And they weren't sure, maybe, what constituted Tuma. So they stayed as far away as possible. He says that those types of Chumras are exactly what allows our nation to survive, to continue to survive throughout our Gullahs. We make Chumras for ourselves. We allow ourselves to be that way to the point where we can't imagine our lives without it. Like, for example, you wouldn't imagine going outside without a keep on your head. It's the first thing that a guy that goes off the derech does. You walk outside without it. Now, if a person needs it in business, you have no choice. You have no choice and you have to do it. That's not a choice and whatever. That's something that a person has to deal with. But it's just something that's so automatic that we have a keep on our heads. This is at best a chumrah. We all understand that. There's no deal rice about wearing a kippah. The Taz has a possible idea that maybe it's a Durabanan that you can't say a bracha without a keep on your head. Maybe it's because Christians sometimes take off their hats for the national anthem, etc. But at best, Reb Moshe has a whole on that. But at best, you're dealing with a chumrah. The fact that we're all wearing tzitzis, possibly it's based on a Gemara Menachos, which is a very obvious Gemara Memal from Alpha Rev Katina, that he said that if you're never wearing tzitzis, and Shisu say, will you punish a guy based on a mitzvah say that you're not doing? And he said, yeah, in Be'idun Rizchos, said the Malach, at a time of anger, HaKadosh Baruch will punish you. Are you chayiv to wear tzitzis? Look, technically, no, we're not chayiv to wear tzitzis. We don't have four-cornered begadim, except for the one guy who texted me on Purim, who was wearing a poncho, and said, am I chayiv and tzitzis in this? And I said, yeah, 100%. He was wearing a full-blown poncho with four corners. It was an exact thing of tzitzis. I'm like, 100% you're chayiv and tzitzis. So I, I, he told he could round the corners, but it was a little, that was a little too late. It was halfway through Purim when he texted me. So he didn't wear a costume that Purim. That's fine. That happens, right? But at least that idea of we're not chayiv and tzitzis, but we do it. We do it. We took on that chumrah. Every single one of us took on that chumrah. There are tons of chumras that we have. Look, Pesach night is because of chumras. We got saved because we didn't, what? We didn't change our names, our language, or our clothing while we were in Mitzrayim. And granted, those aren't in the same medrash, but those three things are what saved us. We have chumras that allow us to live. And you could probably think of about a hundred things that we do that are pure chumras. Chumras. Not a Durabana, not even, not a Dilraisa. But just chumras, just a stringency that we took upon ourselves. And that's what saves us. Adagal self says, we're Sternbach. That's exactly what happened to the Rabbanon over here, the Mishmeras that they made for themselves. Now, there is another reason why they sat by the Olmoid, which is super interesting. It's brought in the Medrash Tanchuma, quoted by the Rabbeinu Bechaya. But I saw this quoted all over the place, as you'll see. The world sat Shiva before the Mabul happened. Now, we know Rashi. Why did they... If the, the, uh, Noah was told 120 years. After 120 years were up, the Mabul was supposed to happen. And Hashem says, in another seven days, I'm going to bring the Mabul. Bo'od Shivas Yomim, I'm going to bring a Mabul. Rashi famously says, Misushelach, Noah's Zaidi, passed away. And they sat Shiva for him for seven days, and then the Mabul happened, right? Says the Rabbeinu Bechai, according to this Medrash that's not why they set Shiva. They set Shiva for the entire world. God knew the world was going to be destroyed seven days later, so they set Shiva for it before it happened. That's what happened. They set Shiva. Why do we only sit Shiva after somebody passes away? Because we don't know if they're actually going to die. 
We have absolutely no idea. So we have to wait for a person to die to sit Shiva for them. We don't sit Shiva before and we only sit Shiva afterward. Says the Rabbin but by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who knows what's going to be, yes, I know free will, I don't know how to answer it based on this Rabbeinu B'chai, I don't get it entirely, but because Hashem knows what's going to be, He could allow them to sit Shiva beforehand. So therefore the Mabul was sitting Shiva, right, before they did anything. He says the exact same thing happened over here as well. God knew that Nadav and Aviu were going to die on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the eighth day of the Miluim. God also knew that those who were supposed to sit Shiva, Aaron, Elazar, and Itamar, could not do so because they would be Kohanim Gidolim after the Mishkan was set up. A Kohen Gadol can't sit Shiva. He can't do anything in Avelus. He has to do his regular thing even as an Onin. He has to do everything he's supposed to do. A Kohen Gadol has to do that and all three of them were Kohanim Gidolim. But knowing that Nadav of you, so in order for Nadav of you to have a Shiva for their death, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told them to sit these seven days before Rosh Chodesh Nisan in order to have a shiva for both of them. And because HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew it was going to happen, he did it beforehand and there's no shallow whatsoever. This is all from the Rabbeinu Bahaya quoting a Medrash Tanakhuma, which is absolutely amazing. The shock adds to this that you see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu considers the death of great tzaddikim to be equal to the destruction of the world. That's literally the, the equation over here. Hashem's made us sit shiva beforehand twice. The only two times he did this was when the world was destroyed and when Nadav and Aviyu passed away. That's the equation that you're equaling, not just that the Misa Sadiqim is like Kisrefas Beis Elokeinu, like the destruction of the base Mikdash. It's like the destruction of the world. That's how powerful it is. The Miyamwe's points out that Moshe Rabbeinu knew about this, but Aaron and his sons had no idea. He hinted it to them with this Pusik, you're going to sit beforehand. I mean, he didn't explain the why. They could have understood it from there, but they didn't understand what he was trying to tell them. But the Shach himself says they did figure it out. And they knew something bad was going to happen. They knew someone was going to die. They just weren't sure who it was. They knew someone was going to pass away. And they weren't sure. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu said to Aaron, I thought it was either me or you. It turns out Nadav and Aviv are greater than us. Right? That they happened to be greater than us and that was what, can, what, what was going to happen. They accepted God's decree besimcha and they sat shiva besimcha during those seven days leading up to the consecration of the Mishkan. They did everything properly, right? No matter what, they would not let this get them down. Isn't that an unbelievable line from the Miyam Loes? The Tzor Amor also talks about this quite a bit. The Abarbanel says it's possible that the words Velo Samusu and Pasuk Lamed Hay is referring to this. It refers to another one of you's death as well. This is the warning that they have to be careful because Lo Samusu, I don't want you to die. He's giving them a seven-day warning period. Do everything correctly. Learn this properly. Get everything down. Don't mess up. Because if you do, someone is going to die. And that's exactly what happened. That was the idea the Abarbanel says. The Imre Shefer says that Moshe Rabbeinu was warning them not to do anything rash because this is the Mishmar of Hashem. The idea that what we just said before. The Maril Diskin says, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu said, Kichin Tzuvesi. This is what I was commanded. Don't ask me how I'm able to make up a seven-day mourning period before it actually happens. Don't ask me. This is what Hashem told me to do. Right? He said, I can't tell you anything more, but something bad is going to happen. Warning the people what's going to be if they don't, if they don't figure this out right now. He compares it to walking into an old Haredi shoal in the 50s. That, oh, I skipped something over here. That was Kikin Tzuvesi, the warning that. The Menachem Tzion, I'm sorry, Rav Zaks, who was one of the Rosh Shiva of Skoki Yeshiva, says it could be 
that a Kaddish Baruch Hu knew the Nadav and Aviyu had no children. And therefore, since they had no children, nobody would be sitting Shiva for them and saying Kaddish for them after they died for the 11 months, 12 months, whatever it was. Now, I realize this was probably before the time that anybody was saying Kaddish. And I get that. Regardless, the idea over here is is that nobody was going to be able to do that before. And so they had a schus by having a Shiva beforehand because of what happened. He compares this to walking into old Haredi shoals in the 50s. Now, I never experienced this. I, I don't even know what, what this is referring to. But I want you to imagine when the whole world seemed to be going off the derech completely, completely. You had people coming back from the Holocaust, shells of what they were beforehand. People not believing that God could have done such a thing. And tons and tons of young Jews going off completely, marrying non-Jews, and just starting off their lives doing something else entirely. So if you walked into a shul, you saw everybody saying Kaddish. Why? If you asked them, they would tell you, because we know no one's going to say Kaddish for us after we die. So therefore, we're saying Kaddish for ourselves before we pass away. Bar Hashem. We're in a world where we can't imagine not saying Kaddish for a loved one after a person passes away. We have yeshivas that get paid to make sure somebody says Kaddish for those who don't have somebody to be able to say Kaddish. But there were people in those times, right, 50s and 60s, who said Kaddish for themselves knowing no one was going to say Kaddish for them after they died. That's the idea of what this is like, right? And then the Uznaim Latorah also talks about this. And he says that the Chavetz Chaim told his Talmidim not to rely on their children saying Kaddish for them, because you never know what's going to happen. There were so many people in the early 30s, 20s, who were going off as well. He said that they should prepare themselves for what will be after they die by making a Kiddush Hashem while they're alive, and that way their children won't need to do anything for them. Don't rely on your kids, the Chafetz Chaim said. You never know where your kids are going to be. That's what he told them. Scary, right? Absolutely scary. It's a lesson, and it's true by anyone who doesn't yet have children. Because who knows what's going to happen when, you, when the time comes? Who's going to be doing that for you? So start yourself off now, constantly be working and thinking about what is going to be after my death. Who's going to be? What would happen if nobody can say Kaddish for me? What am I going to do? It's a scary, unbelievable thought, but it's a crazy thought. And the Chavetz Chaim would tell people about this all the time to be able to go through. And that leads us to the last Pasuk, the very, very last Pasuk. Pasuk Lamed Vod, right? says at the very end of the Parsha, Yasser on a bunch of his cold, Varim Asher Tziba Hashem Biad Moshe, right? It says the following. I'm just going to run through a bunch of stuff because we only have four minutes left. Rashi says that Aaron did exactly as what he was told as a praise to him that he turned neither right nor left and did everything he was supposed to do. Okay, that's a great line that Aaron did that. But did you expect anything less of Aaron? Did anybody expect Aaron to mess this up? Did anybody expect his sons to mess this up? They did it for seven days. They were told to stand there. It's really not that hard of a job. Just don't walk away. And these Sadiqim, you expected them to walk away, to do something else? So the Shari Aaron says, no, because they had to do the Avodah for the right reasons. They did a Lashem Shamayim. Obviously, there was some Gaiva involved. I was chosen. I'm the guy. I'm going to be the Kohen. But they didn't have those reasons in mind. They kept that out of their head, and they did everything perfectly. That's what he says. The Chidah, says they didn't have to do anything. They were just supposed to stand there and do nothing else. They didn't try to help. They didn't push themselves into the Mishkan. They didn't say, Moshe, let us help you. They stood there and watched the entire time, and that was the Milo. The Miam Loez, right, he goes on to it. He says, it could be that Aaron would feel upset that he was commanded by Moshe Rabbeinu and not commanded himself to do what he did. Nonetheless, he accepted everything that Moshe's younger brother told him to do. It was all good. Rav Schwab 
right? Says it was very difficult for them to stand there all night long, like the Ramban, that they had to stand there, and yet they still did that. They stayed exactly what they neither turned right nor left. Literally, they stayed in place all day and all night, even when they fell asleep. They fell asleep like that, you know, like falling asleep really quickly and then picking themselves back up for seven days straight. That obviously is very difficult, but that's according to the Ramban itself. The Igri de Kala has a very, very famous word. He says there are two ways to serve a Kaddish Baruch out of love and out of fear. Love is the Yad Yamin and fear is the Yad Small. He says they did it not because of their love for God nor their fear for God, but because this is what Moshe commanded them to do. They did it simply put because Hashem said this and that's that. I'll end with this. The Chassam Sofer says there are many people who are Bali Gaiva but want to show that they're very humble. I'm really good at this, by the way. I'm extremely, I'm a very big Bal Gaiva, but I'm saying it in a way that makes me sound like I'm an unav. So you think like, oh, nobody who's truly a Bal Gaiva would say that. So I sound like I'm actually a humble person, but I promise you, I really am a Bal Gaiva. But that's a bit of a quandary, right? Because now you think like maybe he really is humble and he's only saying it. See? It's hard. Set. Says the Chassam Sofer, when offered to do something, Bale Gaiva will usually shrug their shoulders or turn to the side as if, like, I'm not worthy of doing it. But if you then walk away, they'll be like, fine, I'll do it. That's the true Bal Gaiva, who's just like, he's only shrugging his shoulders and walk away so you can ask him again, so you can beg him. He really wants you to beg him. That's the type of guy that would be. Aaron and his son, says the Chassam Sofer, didn't shrug their shoulders, didn't use their right and their left to shrug their shoulders or walk, turn from one way to the other and say, no, they, they did exactly as they were told. The true sign of an unav, he says, is somebody who they say to him, do you mind doing this? And he gets up and he goes. He doesn't say like, I don't know, I'm not worthy. He just gets up and he goes and does it. Looks like a Balgaiva, but it's the exact opposite. He does it because he knows that's what he has to do right there. When the Chassam Sofer was offered a shidduch with the daughter of Rabbi Kiva Eger, it's the Chassam Sofer lost both two of his wives earlier in his life. And his third wife was the daughter of Rabbi Kiva Eger, who also had been married one time before. So either way, he was already in correspondence with his future father-in-law over tshuvas. There are different tshuvas that the Chassam Sofer and Rabbi Kivager sent from one to another. So he asked him about the shidduch in the letter. He asked his father, you know, Rabbi Kivager, can you tell me a little bit about your daughter that's being offered to me? I can't imagine that didn't make for an awkward letter, but these people were kulo Torah, so I don't think it meant anything else to them other than that. So the latter wrote back, Rabbi Kivager wrote back and said, my daughter is all the milas he could po- you could possibly want. She's a perfect azer kinegdo for, you know, a great tzaddik, right? But you don't want to marry her, said Rabbi Kivager. You don't want to marry her because I'm sure you want to follow the Maimar Chazal that you should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chacham. And this obviously is not the daughter of a Talmud Chacham because I'm not a Talmud Chacham. That's what Rabbi Kivager wrote back to the Chassam Sofer. Brilliant, right? The Chassam Sofer wrote back, right? And he said, I trust the Rav in all his assurances, right? That his daughter is a really good person. He would take it upon himself that even if the father wasn't up to par, <laughs> he said he would go ahead and marry Rabbi Kivager's daughter, but he doubts that Rabbi Kivager would want to marry his daughter off to him, right? Because obviously you should give all of your money away to 
uh, make your daughter marry a Talmud Chacham, and he certainly isn't a Talmud Chacham. I don't know. I, that, I, when Rabbi Kiva Eger and the Chassam Sofa are talking to each other and calling themselves nobodies, I kind of feel like I'm a piece of garbage. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but like I feel less than a fly. So whatever it is, that's the idea behind it. There's more. Obviously, the Chassam Sofa answers more, but I'll add with one last thing over here. The Nitziv adds on to a Gemara increases Yud Gimel and explains this possible referring to gem- Halacha and Gemara, which are all Halacha and Moshe Misina. That idea before the Mishmaris as well. There is a power that Moshe Rabbeinu had. It's called the Koach HaPilpul. He was one of the only people who have ever had it, an ability to, to learn in a way that you could create Chidushim. Moshe Rabbeinu had it, and he gave it as a gift to Klal Yisrael. That was something they gave on. That was something that was beyond Moshe. This Pasuk means they didn't only do what Moshe Rabbeinu was told to do by Hashem. They even did the Pilpul that Moshe Rabbeinu added on in his own, the Chidushim in the Avodah that were not straight out from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but Moshe Rabbeinu, so to speak, made up and said, here, this is what you have to do. So if you read the puzzle again, it says, They did everything. That God had commanded in the hands of Moshe, meaning not just the word of Hashem that went to Moshe, but what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to get out of it, which is what Moshe Rabbeinu was mefalfo and gave to them, even that Aaron and his sons did. And that's the Milo that he said over here. All right, guys, we'll stop with that. Have a great Shabbos and a Chakash of